1: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Mina Bowes and Andy Rudalevich, who are the editors of Executive Policymaking, The Role of the OMB in the Presidency. This was published by Brookings Institution Press in 2020. Um, And it's a really cool investigation of the Office of Management and Budget, which many people don't know all that much about. Um, But Mina and Andy are going to tell us about it. Um, I wanted to welcome them to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project, because I think it originated in a very
2: interesting conference. Hi, Mina. Hi, Andy. Hi, Lily. Hi, Andy.
0: Hi, great to be with you.
2: Um, I guess, Andy, could I start just telling a little bit about the origins of the book? Um, so, Lily, you had asked, well, uh, I, I teach uh, political science, American politics, and presidency studies. I direct uh, the Peter S. Calico Center for the Study of the American Presidency at Hofstra and am executive dean of our Calico School of Government, uh, Public Policy and International Affairs, Public Policy Program. This uh, volume, Executive Making: the role of the OMB in the presidency, actually the idea for this originated in a uh, conference uh, in one of Hofstra's presidential conferences, the April, uh, sorry, March 2015 uh, conference on the George W. Bush presidency. Uh, Hofstra has, since the early 1980s, hosted uh, three day conferences on each of the modern presidents. Um, the first one was actually in um In 1982, a group of political science faculty were having lunch one day the year before and said, the centennial of FDR's birth is coming up. We should recognize this with a scholarly appraisal. And they ended up putting together this wonderful conference with scholars, journalists, um, public officials who had served during uh, the time that FDR was president. And um, it was very well received, had very good turnout. So then the next year they did Truman and then Eisenhower. And basically between 1982 uh, two in 1993, Hofstra hosted uh, conferences on all of the presidents from FDR through Ronald Reagan. Then after that, as they caught up to the president, it's been a little more spaced out. George H.W. Bush in 97, Bill Clinton in 2005, and George W. Bush in 2015. That was the first conference that I organized. I actually was the George H.W. Bush conference was during my first year at Hofstra, but in 2015 we hosted the bush 43 uh, presidency conference and andy was one of the uh, participants uh, in in the conference afterward we uh, published uh, selected papers from the conference and um, those were uh, those were uh, published by nova science publishers local publisher on long island that very kindly put these together for us in three volumes on the Constitution and the presidency, domestic policy and foreign policy. And when that was complete, I was uh, discussing with Andy, who had a chapter in the first volume, and he just really mentioned, um, it seemed to me by chance, um, have you considered doing a uh, hosting an event on a, on an institution in the executive branch? Um, and since at that point, in 20, that was the end of 2016, it would be some time before we could host a conference on the Obama presidency. I thought, you know, this was interesting. We had discussed these. The Calico Center at that point was fairly new, just under a decade. And um and we and I um we had discussed holding topical conferences, but we'd only done one before on presidential power, uh, which Andy actually also participated in. And then we had done one on, we had started to do these, but they weren't, we hadn't done one on an institution. But uh, I raised it with um, my dean and in um, the provost's office, and everyone was very supportive. Um, and so it kind of developed from there.
0: <laughs> so uh, this is Andy Rutilevige. Uh I'm a professor of American politics at Bowdoin College up in beautiful Brunswick, Maine, uh, and we, you know, have been involved. I have been involved in researching OMB for quite some time, so uh, I'm glad Mina thought that my raising this was by chance because it's part of my long-term plot uh, to actually get people to know what OMB does. Uh, it's a, you know, often termed sort of the most important office nobody's ever heard of, and certainly within the executive branch that. Uh, The first part is true. Uh, The second part internal to the executive branch is not true. People know very well what OMB does, but certainly in the, the broader scholarly community, it's often seen as sort of one part of an undifferentiated White House staff. And that is something I hope the volume actually goes some way to correct. Uh, going back to the the Hofstra conference, though, that was very important in that Hofstra does have this track record of putting on conferences that are terrific at attracting a range of scholars and participants. Uh, and you know, Mina had so the institutional resources and also the academic shops to be able to pull this off, and uh, and did so brilliantly. Uh, it was a really um, terrific conference, I think. In, early-ish 2019. Uh, obviously, our timing worked out well, given what was to come in 2020. Had we targeted it more towards the actual centennial of the Office of Management and Budget, which is 2021, this year, uh, obviously probably wouldn't have worked uh, given the pandemic. So uh, so we were lucky there. And um, I won't say lucky, because again, uh, Mina and Hofstra worked very hard to, to put this together in terms of attracting a good range of people to come. But we were lucky to have uh, Jack Lew, who was the two-time director of OMB, come and give the keynote address. We uh, had a number of people who had worked at OMB, sometime in some cases for a very long period of time. That's something that the agency is noted for uh, throughout its history, uh, and to share their expertise. And then we had, of course, uh, scholars, some of whom, you know, like me, are obsessed with OMB, but others, you know, see it as um, you know, uh, an extension of their research from different directions, and so you know that combination I think worked quite way quite well in the volume.
1: Yeah, I mean, in reading the book, it was really useful to have various voices and different voices sort of coming into the conversation, not only about the institution itself and it and the way that it works, but also as you note, like. Who perceives it in different ways? Because people who work in the executive branch have a particular relationship with OMB, whereas most citizens are like, it's some government agency something um, and not quite sure what its job is. So in an effort to clarify (laughs) what its job is for those who aren't as familiar as presidency scholars can be, the, the role of the, the subtitle of the book, The Role of OMB in the Presidency, is really the sort of lassoing of the way that this agency works with the presidency, but it also works with the executive branch. Um, and as Andy, you noted, it's, it's almost 100, it's 100 years old this year, um, but it used to kind of be something else, Right.
0: It did. Uh, So back in 1921, it was created as the Bureau of the Budget. And it was actually created as part of the Treasury Department at the time, uh, really conceived of as a tool to help the President produce a unified executive budget. Uh, And, you know, this is something we take for granted today that the President will produce a budget every year. Uh, What Congress does with it, of course, remains legislative business. But, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a lot of concern that, you know, all these management techniques that were coming in were being sort of ignored by the federal government. That there was a, a, what one scholar called a budget result rather than a an actual budget proposal. That you know ultimately Congress would pass all these bills, and they would add up to something, right? And you might have a deficit or you might not. And after World War One, especially when you had uh, you know, very high deficit spending, uh, which was not common at that point in the United States, uh, certainly not to the extent we've gotten used to it today, uh, there was concern, right, that we weren't running the government very effectively. And so that combined with sort of this progressive era notion of what management should look like, which tended to involve more executive involvement, uh, led to the creation of this uh, organization, which really Uh, saw itself at the outset, not really as the president's tool, so much as a tool for efficiency in government. It was designed to keep spending down. Uh, And the uh, first uh, director, a guy named Charles Dawes, who would go on to be vice president, actually, uh, Dawes announced that his job was to carry out whatever the government wanted to do in the most efficient way. So if, for example, Congress wanted to pile trash high on the white house steps, it would be his agency's job to figure out how to distribute that trash most efficiently.
1: And you know, would you like to
2: add anything to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think, um, we can certainly get into, um, kind of the, the evolution of, uh, B.O.B., O.M.B., and its role in executive policymaking, what I think one of the parts of this volume, the symposium, which then we were fortunate to be able to develop this into an edited volume. And one of the reasons why I think uh, that was possible is because... um, the volume really takes a comprehensive look at OMB from the evolution. And you see that in the introductory chapters, the what Andy kind of uh, referred to earlier, or uh, the most, the most public side of OMB, the, but it's role in the budgetary process. That's probably what students, um, you know, expert um, followers, right. People who follow politics would, would be aware of. Um, but, a lot of people are not aware of the role of OIRA, the Office of Information, and Regulatory Affairs, the OMB's role with uh, overseeing executive orders. Obviously, that's Andy's uh, area uh, of expertise, um, as in all things OMB. And then one of the parts that I thought was most important, was most interesting was uh, the, the last section of the volume which looks at uh, internal management and uh, how this agency, Works within the executive branch, and seeks to achieve, like right, the term "neutral competence," um, that's been used within its own uh, within its own uh, agency within its own staff. And that was one of the points
1: that I found really interesting in um, in reading this book. And Andy wanted to add a couple of things to this part of the conversation. Go for it.
0: Yeah. So just to note, you know, there are several key sort of evolution points, um, you know, in this institution over the hundred years, right? One comes relatively fast, and this is uh, FDR sort of seizing hold of the Bureau of the Budget. He moves it into the Executive Office of the President, takes it out of the Treasury Department, and begins to use it uh, as a management arm of the presidency in a way that we can certainly circle back to. But the idea that it would be machinery on behalf of the president, not just in this sort of budgetary function, but in the management functions that Mina alluded to is very important. In 1970, maybe is the next big step, right? Which is when Richard Nixon decides he wants to add the name management explicitly to the institution's title, right? So it moves from the Bureau of the Budget to the Office of Management and Budget. And there is a a layering of political appointees that takes place at that time. Uh, But even then, uh, one thing that's worth stressing is that uh, OMB, this idea of neutral competence, comes from the idea that these are largely civil servants, right? This is an organization of about 500 staff. It's That size has changed remarkably little over time, even though arguably it should be bigger than it is, given the responsibilities it has. But most of them are civil servants, right? Careerists. And so while there are certainly political appointees, and that number has risen over time, uh, it remains uh, an organization that can provide institutional memory uh, to the president. So there have been, you know, you have the B side and the M side of OMB, uh, those sort of Ebb and flow in different ways, uh, but you know, generally, uh, the organization has remained similar uh, over sort of a, certainly its post 1970 50 years. And uh, that said, the of course, the broader political context in which it operates has changed, and that has meant some shift in the way it operates. And you know, it has been an interesting feature. A number of the authors talk about its role, for example, in the Trump administration. We can't speak in the volume to biden's administration that we can certainly talk about that today uh, but those sort of the expansion of the agency as part of the president's managerial toolkit uh, which includes the budget uh, and actually uh, one of the chapters does a very nice job of talking about the budget as management um, that's eloise paschukoff's uh, chapter but the um the general outline of the agency, uh, you know, those two big shifts, I think, uh, make it more or less what it is still today.
1: And in terms of that shift, and and again, you both and your authors sort of pay attention to this, as you just noted, Andy, there's a move uh, during the Nixon administration to add that management into so it's not just the Office of Budget, um, but there's also a comparable move that Congress does. Um, at this point that also becomes part of the, the sort of DNA, shall we say, of what OMB is doing um, in terms of uh, budget uh, construction. Can you talk a bit about how that also shifted some of the way that OMB operates um, and what Congress also created for itself to kind of mirror, try to mirror <laughs> what
0: what OMB um, done. Sure. Yeah. So in 1974, uh, Congress is peeved with Richard Nixon in all kinds of ways. Uh, and <laughs> we could talk about all those ways, but the way that important here is uh, the so-called battle of the budget. And this is a, a longstanding argument between presidents and Congress, but Nixon, as was his wont, pushes it that one step further and begins to stop spending money that the Democratic Congress had appropriated, uh, and this was called impoundment, right? So the president refused to spend money that had been appropriated, by the way, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but this is also at issue in the first Trump impeachment. But back in the 70s, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, Nixon is effectively using, or at least his accusers say, he's using impoundment as a way of uh, imposing a line item veto. Right? So Congress will pass stuff he doesn't like in an appropriations bill, Nixon will sign the bill into law, but then he won't spend the money. So he's not enforcing the law uh, that Congress has demanded, required that he enforce. And this came to a head over uh, um, some water treatment uh, projects, basically. That's what the lawsuit was. And ultimately, this goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says that uh, the president cannot refuse to spend money. that. Congress has appropriated. But even before that, Congress had responded politically by passing the uh, Congressional Budget Act and Impound and Control Acts of 1974. And so the latter, impound and control, is what it sounds like, stopping the president from being able to to withhold uh, the issuance of funds that Congress has approved. Congressional Budget Act, though, is a way of Congress trying to deal itself back into the budgetary game. Having given the president this organization that can create a unified budget, Congress wants to be able to centralize its own consideration of the budget. And this hasn't worked out entirely as planned, but one of the stops along the way is the creation of a Congressional Budget Office. And its job is effectively to be the legislature's OMB. They have grown to distrust OMB despite all those nice uh that nice rhetoric back in the 1920s and you know we're gonna work for Congress too. Congress has come over the over time not to to buy that it really has become a presidential outfit and so they want their own independent analysis they want the ability to know what they're spending what you know a, a shift in the income tax rate will mean for revenues what a shift in an assumption about Social Security spending will mean for expenditures um, we have the rise of entitlement spending by this time, so it's getting complicated. And so the ability to have a, again, a nonpartisan, that's very explicitly nonpartisan, CBO is is different from OMB in, in some ways. Uh, so CBO, you know, is created effectively to counteract OMB, but also it's a different kind of institution, um, but one that provides... Uh, another set of estimates about what a bill will cost, what a policy shift will charge. And so when we talk about scoring uh, policy proposals, uh, that's a, you know, a term that's thrown around by uh, budget analyses. Um, That's what they're talking about. You know, how is a particular proposal scored in terms of its impact on the budget? And that became really important in the 80s and 90s when people actually cared about the deficit. It's kind of come down now.
2: I guess just add one point, um, just on um, the importance of that evolution of the budgetary process, both in the executive branch and on Capitol Hill. And what was very important for us in organizing the symposium and the volume was to um, to make sure that those multiple perspectives were represented. And so, in the volume, we have a chapter on the view from Capitol Hill of budgetary politics, the evolution of OMB. We uh, have a chapter from a a professor who served as a a pad in the Obama administration, in the White House, and then over to OMB. So you have executive, institutional, legislative perspective represented um, in the volume, and then combined, complemented with also other work that look at survey research and uh, Original data sets that were used, and then um, practitioner perspectives as the discussants who provided just invaluable commentary. So it was important to us to have a comprehensive assessment of um, how the executive policy making process takes place with OMB. And so, and then, uh, and to incorporate the legislative perspective on that as well.
1: And in, talk, in talking about OMB, as we're throwing all of these acronyms around, um, and, you know, as as oftentimes those of us who study the American government, particularly executive branch, it's alphabet soup, as we know. Um, Nina, what is a pad?
2: I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> 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 uh, presidential associate director. Did I get that right, Anthony? Uh <laughs>
0: Poli- associate policy director. associate director, I think. Yeah,
2: um, I was actually going to try to look that up. I, I knew as I said it that that <laughs> was going to come up, and I should have. This was a terrible thing to not be. Um, uh, Program associate director,
0: yeah. Program associate director, uh, there, there me, we go. Yeah. That.
2: Thank you, Lily. <laughs> yeah.
0: Worth noting maybe that the uh, they are the kind of lowest ranking political appointees in OMB, so the director and the deputy director, and then there's actually a second deputy director for management. Uh, And then you have these statutory offices that are created, like OIRA, which uh, another acronym. Mina did say what that was earlier, Uh, but they are the regulatory czars of the executive branch. Uh, But PADS were created in that 1970 uh, reorganization. Well, a little bit later, but they were basically created in the Nixon administration to provide a little more political control uh, over the the programs of government. So they deal with uh, policy, and there's one basically for each of the uh, categories of policy. So OMB is divided up into resource management offices, uh, RMOs, to spin off yet another acronym. And you know, there's one for health and there's one for defense and there's five or six, depending on the administration. Uh, and there's usually one pad for each of those and they oversee almost all careerists underneath them.
1: So how many political appointees are there within the OMB structure? Because you said... Andrew, that it it had been few, it's increased a little bit, but it's still not a substantial number. That the most most of the people, the vast majority of the people who work in OMB are civil servants.
0: Yeah. So this number is a little hard to pin down, administration to administration. There are only really well, so there are three Senate confirmed positions, the director and two deputy directors on sort of the top of a hierarchy. And then as I say, those statutory offices like OIRA um, each have a confirmed director. Uh, they, Except for OIRA, they usually attract very little attention. Um, and so then there are political appointees like PADS who are presidential appointed but not Senate confirmed. And depending on you know who their assistants are, I don't know how deep in the weeds you want to get of the Schedule Cs of the world and all the different civil service exemptions to the civil service. Uh, but you know, the usually there's somebody called the executive associate director, who's sort of the right hand person to the director, uh, doing a lot of the internal bureau management. Um, and you know, so there may be uh, people who are not careerists, but who have moved in possibly from other parts of government uh, or from external sources. Uh, and so, you know, those numbers again will vary. Um, Many of them are not particularly partisan, right? You've got the director's suite, effectively. Those people normally are brought in administration by administration. The pads certainly shift administration to administration. Um, but some of the people, even in, um, you know, who might technically be non careerists, are, you know, are in government for the long haul. Um, so somebody like Martha Coven, who uh, was alluded to earlier, right, had been working in the White House. Uh, On one of the uh, policy councils, uh, domestic policy council in her case, and then moved over to OMB as a PAD, Um, and then, you know, sort of made a recent return as the uh, the chair of the the Biden administration's transition team for OMB.
1: And so, and in in terms of like something that isn't in the book, um, but has recently happened, is this was the only appointee so far that Biden withdrew was his um, his appointee to be the director of OMB. Um, And and so how how do we think about that, given the research that you all have pulled together in this book in terms of understanding that directorship and how it has become extremely political?
2: You know, I think that one, um, it's an interesting question and one that I've kind of been thinking about a lot since the uh, Neera Tandon's nomination um, and then the withdrawal of that nomination and uh, the position to my knowledge is still not filled. Um, it's still in acting, right? There hasn't been a Senate confirmation, uh, nomination or confirmation yet. Um, and I think um, the volume, we did not do a chapter specifically on the OMB director, but I would say the role of the director underlies each of the chapters and of course we were fortunate to have a former OMB director and former treasury secretary and former white house chief of staff jack lou participate in the uh, event and in our symposium and wrote a preface and uh really had a chance to engage with all of us uh on the first day of our symposium um and I, i i think what i would say you see there the importance of the agency and of, I guess, um, how, for me at least, as someone who hadn't studied OMB previously, how institutionally rich OMB is. And we were fortunate to have de- dads, deputy associate directors, right, uh, as discussants for the uh, our panels. Um, and the, to hear their career expertise and how much they guided the budget process over decades, and um, and and the deep respect and recognition that Secretary Liu gave to them in the symposium, in the preface, throughout, just the, the kind of the interactions um, and the conversations about different budget times, right? Different case studies. There are some examples in the book, but um. He, I think you see, I guess I would say, Lily, um, how the OMB director position at least should be, um, and I probably apply this to other cabinet agencies, more institutional than political. And as political scientists, I don't want to kind of oversimplify here because we know that politics is involved in any Senate-confirmed appointment, but that there really is um, so much institutional depth in the agency. I think Jack Lew said uh, the in in the symposium, the agency punches above its weight, right, that they do so much, right, Uh, making do with less. And um, just a quotation from another project. Um, But I I think we we really see that. So I guess this is kind of a long response to your uh, question about the OMB directorship. It is unfortunate, I think, to see the lack of a uh, a posi- this position in place, um, particularly it's the only ca- only cap, the Senate confirmed position in the kind of top cabinet that hasn't been uh, that is open right now in the Biden administration. But I think you also see the depth within the agency that makes it, you know, one of the reasons why um, in our volume we focus on the OMB director in connection with um, policymaking, management, the evolution of the agency rather than a separate chapter on the individual alone.
0: Yeah, just to note that, you know, the confirmation of even the OMB director dates only from the 1970s as well. This was something that Congress sort of did to get revenge, if you will, on, on Nixon in yet another way. And there had been a lot of resistance over time to this agency being seen as, well, an agency rather than as part of the presidency. Right? And it occupies this weird legal uh, netherworld where it actually is uh, an agency under federal statute, which, by the way, for scholars means that you can find its records in the National Archives and not in the presidential libraries, uh, which is mostly a good thing because there's more available to you sooner uh, through that mechanism. Uh, but, you know, it is one of these, it's in this kind of odd place where you know, you can FOIA OMB, Uh, you can, you know, get records from OMB. And so it's seen sometimes as being, you know, a little outside the orbit of the White House. This is a a continuing tension that shows up in a lot of the uh, chapters in the volume is this sort of, Tug between responsiveness and pure competence. You know, how responsive should it be? And Nira Tandon clearly got caught up in that in her nomination process. Right, this idea that she was a partisan. She had said mean things about senators. Um, you know, and the OMB director really does have to straddle. You know, this ability to manage an important agency and to be very good substantively, and to, you know, serve the president uh, along with the presidency. And that's, that's hard to do. Uh, again, in, in the old days, that wouldn't have been an issue You know, if Joe Biden wanted to appoint Neera Tanden, he would have just done it. Now, of course, you do have to go through the confirmation process. It is the first time uh, that a president's uh, initial pick for OMB director has not been confirmed. Uh, again, that's not a really lengthy timeline, only going back to the 70s, uh, starting with Gerald Ford's uh, pick, I believe. But it's notable. And of course, now you have, uh, the deputy director, uh, who had been a longtime congressional budget person on the staff there, uh, serving as the acting director. So I don't think there's any real loss in competence. Uh, she certainly knows the process well and has worked with OMB from the Hill side of the equation, but you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, whether the responsiveness side is seen as somewhat lacking with, you know, uh, She's a Biden person now, but not in the way that maybe a, a confirmed director would be. So it's a, uh, yeah, it remains intriguing. and it's also, by the way, uh, goes against one of the recommendations in the, in the volume. the uh, um, you know, some of the the good government folks from DC uh, were good enough to write a conclusion chapter and they said, yeah, you need to work on this fast. Get people in place. make sure there's a confirmed director early. Uh, and even before her confirmation process kind of derailed, it wasn't an early pick. There was a you know there's uh, it doesn't appear to have been the priority that you know when I'm president, I will make it.
2: on uh-huh. <laughs> that one thing. I'm glad you brought up the partnership for public service uh, report, Andy, because they, um, partnership for public service had published a, prepared a transition report in 2016 and they were kind enough to um, update that for the volume um, and really kind of planning for writing that because the volume came out before the election uh, the 2020 election to uh, discuss both the needs of either a second term or a new administration and indeed that this was one of the um, one of the topics that they bring up.
1: And I, I mean, I had noticed because you do have the listings of all of the OMB directors in the back of the book, and I was flipping through that right before we got on. And, you know, I did remember that Mick Mulvaney had two jobs um, for a period of time, both of them interim, um, but that the Trump administration had mostly had interim um, OMB directors. I mean, I, I understand that Trump administration had a lot of interims, um, at Justice and, and other places as well. Um, but that his OMB directors didn't go through the Senate confirmation process during most of his administration.
0: Well, Mulvaney did, uh, and he was, um, so he was. Mulvaney, as you say, it's sort of a world apart talking about Trump administration appointments, but Mulvaney was nominated, right? And confirmed as OMB director, then served over at the, I'm going to get my acronym wrong here, uh, CFPB, uh, (laughs) the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, When, you know, President Trump was trying to uh, find a a loyal appointee who could kind of, uh, Trim their sales, Uh, but then, of course, as you know, moved over to the White House as acting chief of staff. Never was not the acting chief of staff, I don't think, and retained technically his position as budget director that whole time, and then left both. And uh, Russ Vought, who had been the deputy director, who was kind of delayed in getting confirmed in the first place, uh, but then, you know, I think effectively ran the agency while Mulvaney was off doing other jobs. Uh, He was not confirmed until 2020 as actual director, and so served in that role as confirmed director for, as you say, a pretty brief time.
1: Um, and it sounds, in that in that model, it sounds also like what FDR did in bringing the Bureau of the Budget into the sort of executive office of the president, as opposed to sort of having it out there sort of separately in Treasury, um, that that by by sort of pulling Mulvaney in, he was, Trump was doing a sort of similar kind of move, or at least trying to.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because presidents have often rely. I mean, this is a recent trend for OMB directors to become White House chiefs of staff. Uh, you know, going back to the Clinton administration, you have um, Leon Panetta, right, who was, again, a longtime member of Congress, then becomes Clinton's OMB director. And then White House chief of staff, Jack Lew, who we've already mentioned, um, does the same for Obama. Uh, Mulvaney does the same for Trump, uh, again, the other two did leave their OMB position more formally. Uh, I don't get the sense that Mulvaney had much of a footprint in OMB after he became White House Chief of Staff, but, you know, again, that's for future research to, to dig into a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things the OMB director has going for them, right, is that they know the whole government. And so, you know, if they can, if they can be good at running OMB, they should have a good handle on you know, the different processes that are working, uh, you know, broadly speaking, the president's program, whether that's legislative, budgetary, regulatory, you know, through executive orders, you know, the whole uh, government view is something that OMB takes very seriously. So if you are a good director, uh, then you actually are in a pretty good position to come over to to the White House, right? And to sort of replicate that with fewer You know management in a small sense right organizational management uh, responsibilities Um, you know and i think on the whole certainly um panetta and and lou were seen as decent white house chiefs of staff um mulvaney i don't know i guess the jury would still be out there uh, better than the guy who succeeded him i will say that much
2: i guess i would (laughs) um just the one thing i would was that uh, i would hesitate to make comparisons between Trump's, uh centralization of decision making and previous modern presidents I, I think there was it was um there was very little i would say kind of broader institutional perspective or, or balancing of pol- politics and institutionalization what i would say i um we were actually the timing it's a small point but russ vote was the acting director for almost a year and it was right around the time that the pandemic started that uh, Trump announced that he would be formally nominated. And if I'm correct, Andy, we were able to just squeeze in that confirmation. I mean, the book was literally, um, we were reviewing, we had reviewed second page proofs. I think the confirmation went through, if I remember in July of 2020, and we were glad to have the historical record <laughs> accurate in the volume up till the time of publication. But again, That's I, like-
0: I it was I just, confirmed in July 2020. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Just, we got it into a footnote.
2: <laughs> it's at the end of the chart, um, right before publication. And But just, just uh, I think, Lily, that's interesting because it's illustrative of just how um, how closely held that decision-making was and how unpredictable it was in, um, in the Trump administration.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. By the way, just uh, to be complete, we should note that Josh Bolton uh, in the Bush administration was also... Both OMB director and White House chief of staff.
1: So it is a path.
0: <laughs> it is. It is. As
1: we used to say, or as we used to say, <laughs> as you all know, you know the early the early presidents were secretaries of state, and I always tell my students that was the path to getting to be president. So this is, you know, your path to White House chief of staff is OMB director. <laughs> so
2: we haven't seen any of them run correct. We haven't seen any of them. The right, other way. None of them. Considered a presidential run, to my knowledge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Charles Dawes, as I said, was vice president. I think that's the highest they've they've gotten. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. There have been members of Congress, you know, and others who have, uh, you know, and people who become governor. McDaniel's, for example, a Bush administration uh, OMB director governor of Indiana. Um, pre- well, he was pre- he's president of Purdue, right? Right. right.
2: Uh. Yeah. <laughs> a presidential, actually, of of the recent OMB directors, probably the one who I think was kind of considered the most like a, a very likely contender um, in 2012, I guess. Oh, and and good. so
1: I I wanted to um, bring you back a little bit to the structure of the book itself Um, because we've talked a little bit about the OMB and the budget process and the the sort of history. Um, But we have a whole second section that uses the term central clearance. And Andy, of course, has a chapter on this um, because he has a particular interest, I believe, in executive orders. Um, But this is something that OMB does. Um, And it's a really important point uh, in terms of its process and its function, um, in this, you know, sort of nebulous world that it, it sort of exists in. Um, so if you could explain a little bit about what central clearance is and, and how it works within the OMB process and ways that it is and isn't political. Andy,
2: that's your chapter. So I'll try to... All
0: right. Well, I love central clearance, so you'll, you feel free to cut me off at <laughs> some point. <laughs> uh, so this goes back to Franklin Roosevelt and his notion that uh, then the Bureau of the Budget could be a useful piece of machinery for executive management. Because, you know, you're coming in as president, you don't really know what's happening in the different departments and agencies. And at that time, you didn't have a significant staff that could help you find out what's going on. Uh, So, you know, FDR had a bureaucracy he broadly trusted. After all, he built a lot of it himself. Uh, And so in that sense, he's quite different than Trump And that Trump, you know, distrusted the whole idea of the deep state, right? So there's, I think, a different relationship. But even so, uh, Roosevelt wants to know what is going on in government, and he wants it to bear his imprint, right? Not everything that government does uh, is something that the president wants it to do. And Roosevelt wanted to effectively protect himself against, you know, the deep state circa 1935. And so he has different coordinating uh, mechanisms that he experiments with, ultimately basically settles on the Bureau of the Budget, as I say, moves it into the executive office of the president, which is brand new itself at that time in 1939, and uses it uh, to coordinate a legislative program. Uh, as well as executive orders. And on the legislative side, that means effectively, this, this really comes into its own in the Truman administration, uh, canvassing the entire executive branch to find out what it wants to do legislatively and then kind of uh, forming some of that, the best stuff, into a presidential program. Uh, but really anything that an agency wanted to submit to Congress, anything that it wanted to say to Congress in testimony, uh, any kind of position it wanted to take on legislation as it moved through the legislative process, you know, OMB, I'm just going to call it OMB to avoid confusion, was in charge of, you know, clearing that and making sure both that the president knew what was going on, but also that other agencies knew what was going on. And so, one reason that agencies actually don't mind this kind of peer review process is so they get the chance to weigh in. And so if you're the agriculture department, you don't want the interior department, you know, stealing a march on you, proposing something to Congress that will give the interior department control over something that you in agriculture really want. Uh, And so, and that's not a random example, by the way, they're always arguing with each other. Uh, The archives are fun in that way. The general idea, though, is that the president will know what's happening and he can say, yes, this, I want to be part of the presidential program. This, yeah, feel free to submit it but it's not mine or this other stuff. No, don't even do that. Uh, in fact, we now know, you know, from having surveyed all the other interested uh, parts of the executive branch, we know that this is a terrible proposal and we're not gonna go forward with it. And so there's that sort of, uh, it's informational both for the agencies and notably for the president, a way of basically uh, getting around the information asymmetry that presidents have. They don't know as much about what's going on in this huge executive branch as they would like to. Uh, OMB provided a means of doing that. So the legislative side is one important piece of that, Uh, especially when president's main programmatic efforts were on the legislative side. uh, Executive orders become part of that quite early. And so one thing. people may not realize is that many, even most executive orders don't come from the White House originally. They come from the departments and agencies. They're sort of proposed by a department. Mr. President, please issue an executive order doing X. And that too goes through this clearance process where OMB receives the draft executive order uh, and then it will send it out to all the different agencies that it thinks might be interested and then decide what to tell the president. Will it recommend that the president sign and issue this executive order? Maybe not. Maybe it needs to be revised. And so it's a way, again, of, you know, agencies are very good at saying, Mr. President, you've got to do this. This should be a great thing. But you know, the president can be easily sold a pig in a poke in this sense, right? There are, you know, the counter examples are always the fun ones, the ones where Dick Cheney goes to the president, and gets him to sign something that has received not even an eyeball from the Secretary of State, for example. Uh, but there are examples of that kind of end run through history and presidents who have resisted the end run have generally gotten better substantive results. And that you know is one reason for the creation of the institution itself so just the last thing i'll say is that regulatory review was added later in the 1970s and especially in the 80s to the current day this is rachel potter's chapter in the volume rachel has written a whole book about uh a again the office of information and regulatory affairs which is created uh, in 1980 at the very tail end of the carter administration and then uh, effectively taken over by President Reagan as a way of enforcing this same kind of central clearance on regulation that is already in place for uh, congressional legislation and for executive orders. And that's important in part because uh, regulations are actually not in the presidential toolbox directly, right? When Congress passes a law, it says that the agency will create regulations to enforce that law, not the president, him, someday herself. And that is, you know, something presidents have tried to get around through this clearance process through OIRA. The fact that they don't have direct yay or nay control over regulations, but this central clearance process at least gives them information, gives them a way of delaying regulations they don't like, trying to amend them. Um, and if nothing else giving them a heads up that you know that they might need to fire a cabinet secretary who's not doing what they want them to do. So uh, that is a more recent addition and in some ways uh, the most controversial actually because again, regulations exist you know in this uh, administrative netherworld that, uh, you know, it may not be as directly under con- presidential control, but, you know, OIRA has survived now, you know, itself for 40 years and seems unlikely to go anywhere. Um, by the way, there I don't believe there is any nominee uh, for a Biden OIRA director either at the moment, which is a little bit surprising.
1: And, and so in this regard, can both of you talk a little bit more about um, what O, o- does and how it functions within the OMB sort of ambit.
2: I wish we had Rachel Potter here to share. Oh, no. sure. You're just gonna <laughs> have to channel her. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess I would just say, um, and this is where I, I thought that um, Rachel's uh, and rachel potter's analysis in the chapter of uh putting together a cv of oira's successes right away what it's achieved and where it's fallen short uh as someone who worked in uh who had previously worked um in the uh agency was was very instructive for combining kind of a scholarly perspective as well as a practitioner perspective and Interestingly, when we were having discussions, uh, not so much in the symposium, but we did an APSA panel before um, uh, uh, with the revised chapters, and um, that was actually in D.C., and there were some members, retirees who attended, who were somewhat critical of this. I think we're not aware that didn't realize that, um, in fact, that um, in the, uh, it was less actually, it was in in, in the discussions, we're not always aware that... Um, some of the contributors had actually uh, worked in the agency or had done uh, pretty close interview-based analysis for their conclusion. So I guess um, beyond that, I don't have a lot to add beyond what Andy just said about the creation of OIRA, the fact that it's now entering entering the fifth decade, right, and then goes through this. uh, For me, this was instructive, for going past the budgetary process of OIRA, excuse me, of OMB, to examine how OIRA actually oversees, kind of provides, I guess this is a little bit of the centralization and the clearance that uh, Andy was talking about with executive orders to see the same thing with agency regulations, that there is this effort to ensure that the executive branch, that the decentralization that we see in Executive agencies still has a kind of a common um, uh, process for vetting, um, approving, or um, changing uh, regulations that you know outside of the beyond the in the implementation process.
0: Yeah, this is driven by a number of executive orders actually that set up this process. Starting in, well, we could again we can talk about the 1970s, but most formally in 1981, you know, quite early in his term, President Reagan issues an executive order saying, uh, basically, that any regulation that has more costs than benefits cannot be issued, and that of course means we have to be able to figure out costs and benefits of different proposals. And we need to be able to, um, you know, have some kind of regulatory impact analysis was the original jargon uh, for, you know, what happens when we want to change, you know, workplace condition rules or, you know. Things dealing with OSHA or environmental policy, which was the big driver of this originally, was making sure that the EPA was not driving businesses, you know, into bankruptcy. That was the worry of the Republican administration, certainly. Uh, even Jimmy Carter, though, uh, in terms of, you know, what? Why did we need this check? Well, we needed it because the EPA was full of crazy leftist, you know, green echo warriors who were going to, you know, ruin the American economy. Um, but cost-benefit analysis, rightly considered, right, does not have to be uh, wielded by an agenda, and so it's often attacked, you know, by the left for being too pro-business. Um, sometimes attacked from the right for, you know, coming up with ways to justify, you know, far-reaching health and human safe, uh, human services or workplace safety regulations. Uh, and this is a big argument, right, over what, how do we count costs? What counts as a benefit? What is the the statistical cost of a human life. What is the social cost of carbon? Right. These are things that are, you know, uh, discussed uh, with great acrimony over time. Um, and obviously, the way that a particular administration uh, views them will matter for how OIRA does its work. Uh, but in some ways, it's set up like other parts of OMB. It has desk officers, which deal with a certain substance of the government. Uh, they are not there's not a huge number of them. This is a pretty small uh, bureau, you know, 50-ish people, uh, which is well smaller than it was under President Reagan when it was established. And their job, you know, they have to work with other parts of OMB to get information um, because they can then. Uh, talk about regulation in conjunction with other management initiatives, or with legislative proposals, or with budgetary proposals. Right? If you have, you know, if you impose a certain regulation, then probably that will have budgetary impact. And so it is an agency-wide process. They do try to cooperate, um, and they need to, or else they will not be able to really be effective. But I, I think you know, it, it does become the most contentious part of OMB in some ways, at least external to the government. Because they are, you know, basically trying to come to some conclusion as to whether a certain regulatory proposal, you know, is a a project that's worth doing. Uh, And that is inevitably ideological, especially in today's polarized political climate.
1: And I just wanted to ask one final question in terms of the book itself. And... And the work that your many contributors who are both inside and outside of government, academics and and practitioners, which is a really interesting part of the book to have. And I really recommend it to um, interested. Uh, individuals in terms of reading because it does bring these multiple perspectives in in terms of a really nicely put together book and and this is always you know like you don't have a favorite child um, so I'm not asking you your favorite chapter Um, but as the as the chapters are coming in and after the conference what was the most surprising aspect of the research that you both of you scholars of the presidency and Um, American institutions found in terms of what your contributors were working on and what they had surfaced in terms of our understanding of this agency and how it operates.
2: Well, I'm glad you didn't ask us to pick a favorite because I really couldn't. I I mean, really, I I just, this was truly a labor of love and it wasn't one that i had um you know would have taken on um had it not been um had andy not suggested this project and um and i'm so glad we did um the symposium was instructive i'm glad we have the volume as a record of uh particularly as we're in the centennial year of uh, omb i think um to have this available to to trace the evolution of the agency and to see both the internal and external assessments um, of its capabilities and resource demands in the modern era is, for, since the creation of from Bob to OMB, is very important. I guess I would say, Lily, that my what I think is most interesting or what was most surprising to me um, was how, and I don't want to repeat, but it, but it, it really just. Was reinforced just how much the institute, how strong the institutional memory is in OMB, and how that is conveyed to scholars, um, how that from in interviews, in uh, numerous uh, in the symposium, and how that institutional memory informs political decision making by either uh, Senate-confirmed or um, or immediately uh, below Senate-confirmed appointees?
0: Yeah, I would, so this is a, a great question, uh, and of course, as I'm thinking about it, I go, well, that chapter's great, that was really interesting, uh, <laughs> I didn't ask and I would but... say, <laughs> yeah, no, I know, uh, I would say what readers I hope will find useful about the book is that it's, there is a taxonomy of sorts. Here's what OMB looks like. Here are the different agencies or sub-agencies, I should say, bureaus, parts of the uh, of the office that are, you know, functional in these different ways. And here's how they uh, work with the White House and so forth. Um, but you know, a lot of those scholars did take these sort of interesting. Perpendicular views to that. So again, I mentioned Eloise Pashakov's uh, volume. She's writing as a law professor who's really interested in the ways in which presidents use budget authority uh, as management effectively. Um, and we saw this, you know, in the Trump years with, um, you know, with Ukraine, but uh, with the government shutdown, uh, but also and also with the. Uh, ways in which the border wall, you know, got funded, despite the fact that Congress didn't want to fund a border wall, right, you get a sense of the discretion broadly granted by Congress over time. Um, Another uh, example would be The chapter by Dave Lewis uh, and his co-authors, Mark Richardson and Eric Rosenthal, uh, who are writing about management, but they're writing about it from the perspective of survey data that they have from across the executive branch, uh, basically asking other people in government, how do you see other agencies? It's a fascinating data set. This is only a teeny part of it, but, you know, they, they asked, you know, is OMB influential, you know? Is one be good at what it does? Has that changed over time? And they have the data to be able to do that, and to be able to think about well, what kind of agencies, you know, are susceptible to centralized control, and which really are beyond the reach of the president in most cases, and uh, you know, where you might want to be more attentive, for example, to finding a loyal appointee if you're a president who wants to control a given agency. Um, and then I think uh, I would also just. Uh, Give a quick shout out to Matt Dickinson's chapter, uh, which is based largely on interviews that he and I have conducted uh, over now 10-ish years uh, you know with people who are you know have worked in OMB going back to the 1950s. and you know these are you know, it's their perspective on how the agency has changed and it comes back to this question of uh, whether the agency has become politicized over time. You know, this notion of neutral competence and how does that survive in an era where presidents really don't care about neutrality and arguably not so much about competence. They want responsiveness, they want political uh, and immediate uh, compliance effectively with their directives, um, except they find themselves in a system where that's unlikely and arguably even undesirable. So that kind of tension. Shows through, but then you know again we've got uh, you know people who were the general counsel's office at OMB, people who worked uh, as PADS, uh, and uh, as Mina said, all of this was read through uh, by a lot of OMB alums who served both as discussants at the original conference, and then uh, we had a big meeting at OMB itself, very exciting, uh, in the Red Building. For those who want to look at the cover of the book, that's the Red new, Building, yeah, very- uh, the new Executive Office Building up on Seventeenth Street. Uh, and yes, that was uh, you know sort of the uh, a reality check, if you will. So I, I'd like to be able to tell you know future readers that they will they'll be getting a good view of what happens in the agency and some good advice about you know what they should do uh, should they become should they come to run the agency later on or to have a way of a say in that.
2: And Andy, even though they can't see the cover, I think it's important to note that OMB is right side up and the White House is upside down, right? That OMB (laughs) keeps the White House, right? Keeps it looking, (laughs) keeps it stable and uh, kind of... Provide some provide some continuity and clarity in what can be a sometimes upside down political <sighs> world.
0: <laughs> yeah, should I just note that Mina did not like this cover originally, but I think she's come around. She's uh, took a she... while. <laughs>
1: it, it is noted in the acknowledgments.
0: <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> well, I would like to thank Mina Bose and Andy Rudalevich for joining me today to talk about executive policy making. Role of the OMB in the Presidency. This is published in 2020 by Brookings Press, and I assume it's available at Brookings Press.
0: <laughs> it is, but also wherever fine books are sold. Uh, at your, all of
1: the
2: usual sites.
1: <laughs> our usual site and of course, your local independent bookseller. Um, Absolutely. Thank, thank you, Mina and Andy, for joining me today.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Sure. Yeah, really enjoyed
2: it.